welcome to this week's edition of the Worcester Talking newspaper, recorded here at Colin Chance House on Thursday the 14th of June 2018. I'm Evelyn Brock, editor for this team, and with me to read news and articles are Paddy Fellows and Hugh Thomas. Our sound engineer is Barry. Our thanks go to Worcester News for the material we'll read for you. The headlines for the week beginning June the 8th are Friday, June the 8th, 150 jobs at risk with City Store to close. Saturday, June the 9th, no regrets on John Lewis' plan. Monday, June the 11th, motorcycle death crash. Tuesday, June the 12th, Desperate for skin condition support. Wednesday, June the 13th, child rapist jailed for life. And Thursday, June the 14th, what do we want? So it's over to the team for the headline articles. Up to 150 jobs are at risk with Worcester's House of Fraser department store set to close. The store in Crowngate Shopping Centre will close early next year after the struggling chain announced that 31 of its 59 outlets across the UK and Ireland will shut as part of a rescue plan. Regular customers described the news as terrible yesterday. Jane Foster, 76, said... I have been living in Worcester for 33 years and I have come here regularly even before it was House of Fraser when it was Beatty's. They have always they've already closed Russell and Dorrell and there are not really many more department shops in Worcester. I feel saddened about this. Another shopper Karen List 60 an administrator said department shops seem to be closing more and more and it's a shame. I am surprised the Cheltenham store is staying open and ours is not. I don't think it was keeping up with the times and so much shopping is done online these days. George Furby, 83, added, I am very disappointed. I come here at least twice a week with my wife. She buys a lot of her clothes here and I come and buy coffee and also buy some clothes as well. A note outside the Worcester shop said that it was closed yesterday morning for a company briefing, as staff were told the news. Phoebe Dawson, chief executive of Worcester Bid, said, Our thoughts are with the management and staff of House of Fraser, many of whom have worked in the city centre for a long time. It is important to recognise that today's announcement is no reflection on those individuals' hard work and commitment. Throughout the retail sector, we are seeing numerous examples of the challenges being faced as businesses respond to a rapidly changing environment. Customer sentiment and increased pressure upon cost base mean that maintaining profitability in the retail sector is difficult. There continue to be excellent examples of success within the retail sector, both in Worcester and nationally, and we should and will continue to celebrate these. A House of Fraser spokesman said, the store in Worcester is among the 31 sites that have been identified for closure. 
All 149 staff employed directly by the company or its concessions have been notified and will be supported throughout the process. A spokesman for the Crown Estate, which owns Crown Gate, said he did not wish to speculate on which businesses could fill the House of Fraser unit in the future. House of Fraser said the planned closures come as part of a company voluntary arrangement, an insolvency procedure in vogue among struggling retailers. If approved by landlords, it will affect up to 2,000 House of Fraser staff and a further 4,000 across brands and concessions. Stores in Birmingham, Wolverhampton, Shrewsbury, Telford and Leamington Spa are also set to shut, with the closest shop in Worcester to remain open in Cheltenham. Alex Williamson... Chief Executive of the House of Fraser said, We, as a management team, have a responsibility to take necessary steps to ensure the House of Fraser's survival, which is why we are making these proposals. Now the headline from Saturday, June the 9th, which follows on from the article you've just heard. No regrets on John Lewis' plan. Councillors say they have no regrets about their decision to turn down John Lewis, claiming that it would have accelerated the decline of the city centre. After Thursday's announcement that House of Fraser is set to close in Worcester next year, with 150 jobs at risk, many residents believe the council's rejection of John Lewis as an out-of-town location off Newtown Road, has proven to be the wrong decision. Worcester City Council rejected the plan in June 2016 on the basis that it would adversely affect the city centre, something councillors still believe to be the case. Chris Mitchell, current chairman of the planning committee, said... If this plan had been approved, it would have accelerated the decline of shops like House of Fraser and many other shops that are not in trouble now would be under threat. It was not John Lewis we were rejecting. It was the fact that it was out of the city centre. Our high street is faring well compared to many high streets across the country. Councillor Alan Feeney, who remains on the planning committee and voted on the application in 2016, said, No, I do not regret it. The decision was made to preserve the good quality shops we have in the centre and passing this application would have harmed that. Councillor Pat Agar, who is also still on the committee, added, I did not reject the application because of John Lewis. I did it because Marks and Spencer, who were also part of the plan, have form in opening out-of-town shops and then getting rid of their city centre store. I did not want this to happen. House of Fraser is set to close in early 2019. Crowngate Shopping Centre, where House of Fraser is based, refused to say whether there is anyone lined up to take House of Fraser's premises. The newspaper asked shoppers for their views on the loss of the House of Fraser store. Heather Jink said, 
I will really miss House of Fraser. It would have been good to see something like John Lewis in the city. Rosemary Sadler said, It's a shame to see House of Fraser closing down. We're having less and less high-quality places to shop. Worcester could definitely do with having a John Lewis. And Val Floy said, I think it's a shame, and it, House of Fraser, will be a big loss to the city centre, and we need to bring new shops here. Right, now my headline is from Monday, June the 11th, and it's a very sad one about a motorcycle death crash. A motorcyclist in his 40s has died in a crash on a Malvern Road. A 38-year-old man was arrested on suspicion of death by dangerous driving after the crash outside the Green Dragon pub in Gualford Road, Malvern, at around 8.34pm on Saturday night. A man has been released under investigation following the crash between the motorbike and a Land Rover. Residents said that the road, which is commonly known as the Gualford Strait, is notoriously dangerous. Paul Sparry, aged 46, of Gualford Road, said, At about 8.30pm I heard a massive roar of a motorbike. Then it went quiet and there was a bit of a, a knock. It went quiet too soon. You normally hear it going away from you, the noise of the bike, that is. I went outside out of curiosity. The bike and the rider were on the grass and the Land Rover was pulled over. Members of the public were performing CPR before the emergency services got here. You could see there were one or two people leaning over and making motions with was no visible damage to the Land Rover from where I was. Mr Sparry said the police officers were the first on the scene, followed by a land ambulance and an air ambulance, which landed behind the Green Dragon pub. The father of three added, paramedics had a green tent up and were working on him for 45 minutes or an hour. It was pretty clear to me that it was a fatality. Mr Sparry said before police arrived, locals were standing in the street trying to stop the traffic from reaching the scene. The resident, who works as a financial controller, said the road is notoriously dangerously dangerous and commonly known as the Gualford Strait. He said, my wife was hit three years ago down here. She was with the dog on the pavement at 6.30am. A vehicle had mounted the curb and his wing mirror hit my wife's head. She was knocked out. Two years ago, there was a major bike incident. The Gualford Strait is notorious. Anyone wanting to try out their bikes and cars said, let's go down it to the Gualford Strait. There needs to be some speed calming measures. David Kershaw, aged 75, who has lived in Gualford Road for 40 years, has also called for action to prevent another crash. He said this is, road is so fast, it needs someone to show slow the traffic down. <clears throat> We've had neighbours move because the traffic is so fast. And we are frightened. Something needs to be done. I think they should extend the 40 miles per hour limit halfway up the road and then monitor it. 
Mr Kershaw added, an 11-year-old boy was killed by a motorbike on the road just after he moved into his home in the 1970s. The motorcyclist was pronounced dead at the scene and his next of kin has been informed. West Mercia police went this is to call 101, quoting incident number 701S of June the 9th. <clears throat> a 20-year-old man who lives in constant discomfort due to aggressive psoriasis is battling a county health body after it refused to fund the treatment he desperately needs. Ewan Everton said the condition which covers 90% of his body leaves his skin flared up and constantly shedding, meaning he struggles to lead a normal life. Having been diagnosed 11 years ago, he has been on a series of different treatments funded by the South Worcestershire Clinical Commissioning Group, known as the CCG, to combat the incurable condition. However, Mr Everton said the CCG had stopped offering the treatment as it hadn't had a positive effect. I tried three different biological medications, but because they didn't have a huge effect on the condition, they took me off them, said Mr Everton from Barbourne, Worcester. They said the adverse effects would have been worse than the positives if I was kept on them. If three different medications don't work, the CCG don't want to do any more and they stop the funding. He says the decision has left him in limbo, having appealed it three times with the help of his mum, Bev Collins, since the last course of medication in December 2017, to no avail. Mr Everton has been assigned to a consultant at City Hospital Birmingham, for the length of his treatment, though his funding comes from South Worcestershire CCG due to where he lives. Since the age of 18, he's been on three biological drugs, basically quite experimental and need funding from the CCG. And we have to approach Worcester for approval of funding, said Mrs Collins. There's apparently a new drug on the market which they won't even consider funding for him. But his psoriasis is still as bad as ever, she explained. It's a lifelong condition, but the right medication will give him a large amount of resolve and comfort. They don't seem to understand that. He's had it for 11 years, longer than he's not had it. She said he's currently using cold tar cream to give himself any kind of relief but it's really an archaic treatment he bathes with special solutions from health shops and applies the cream twice a day but mr everton said it ruins his clothes because it makes them damp and greasy his mum said he is unable to do martial arts as often as he'd like due to the discomfort caused by the condition and it'll be hard for him to hold down a full-time job. She said the average person's skin sheds around once every 30 days, but due to the psoriasis, her son's skin sheds every two or three days. He is literally surrounded by skin peeling off, and is very red and angry. Mm -hmm. Mr Everton, who will turn 21 at the end of the month, 
currently works in the HR department at Worcestershire Royal Hospital. My job involves a lot of sitting at a desk, which is good because physical activity often causes my skin to crack and bleed, he said. But I really can't focus due to the pain and because moving around at all hurts. He was taken off the off the treatments, which was keeping the condition under control because it was damaging his kidneys and liver. But he feels the CCG's three times rule should be scrapped. Just because three treatments haven't worked doesn't mean none will ever work. They are developing new treatments all the time, but I'll never get to try them, he said. A spokesman for the three Worcestershire CCGs said, Unfortunately, we are unable to comment on individual cases. When asked if they could provide a general comment regarding the three treatments ruling, they did not provide anything before the, new, the Worcester News went to print. Now the headline for Wednesday the 13th of June, Child Rapist Jailed for Life. A dangerous killer who imprisoned and raped an underage schoolboy has been given a life sentence. Ben Murphy must serve a minimum of eight years in prison for the attack on the boy who was bound and blindfolded before he was raped at the defendant's flat in December 2016. The 31-year-old was convicted of the manslaughter of Adrian Palmer in Tenbury Wells a decade ago. The 21-year-old victim, who has autism, claimed Murphy had raped him, which Murphy denied. Mr Palmer was strangled by Murphy on May the 19th, 2006, his body found dumped in an alleyway by a postal worker. Murphy did not attend the hearing at Worcester Crown Court yesterday, claiming he was ill, although the nurse who examined him could find nothing wrong with him. The victim's mother, who attended court, bravely read out her son's personal statement, describing the devastating impact on him and the family. The rape and false imprisonment took place on December the 14th, 2016, after Murphy forced the boy to meet him at a Worcester pub, and they then took a taxi to the defendant's flat in Kidderminster. Murphy had previously groomed him after meeting him on a bus and buying him cigarettes. At the time, Murphy's bail condition stipulated he must have no unsupervised contact with any child under 16. Murphy told the boy to take off his coat in an alleyway and bound his arms behind his back with duct tape. Mr Burroughs said he put a black mask on his head so he was blindfolded. From there, Murphy walked the boy to his home and claimed he was saving him from someone called Connor. The court heard there was no such person, that Connor was in reality the defendant. Murphy told the boy, you want to see how violent I can get? Things can get nasty, big problems. The boy knew about Murphy's conviction for manslaughter, which had a massive impact on the fears he had. The victim was in a closet during the two-hour ordeal and the attack left him with numerous scratches and cuts. The boy's mother broke down as she read out his statement describing how her son's education had suffered and the damage done to her son breaks her heart. 
Police found indecent images when they searched Murphy's address in Mill Street, Kidderminster on July the 2nd, 2014, seizing a computer and BlackBerry mobile phone. Stephen Massich for, for Murphy asked he be given credit for his guilty pleas, some of which were entered on the day of trial, but which he argued still spared the victim from having to give evidence. Murphy admitted rape, false imprisonment, two counts of causing or inciting a child to engage in sexual activity and seven counts of making indecent images of children, some at the most serious level, Category A. Michael Burroughs, QC prosecuting, said Murphy, when told he was fit to attend court, became angry and started banging his fists on the table and refused to travel in the prison van. He argued against a finding of dangerousness, which allows the judge to impose an extended sentence. Mr. Massich said, this is not a situation where the defendant is dangerous. Judge Daniel Pierce Higgins, QC, said Murphy's actions had caused severe psychological harm and involved the humiliation and degradation of the victim. He found the defendant was dangerous, posing a significant risk of serious harm to the public, particularly to children and young boys. The judge jailed him for life, and Murphy must serve a minimum term of eight years before he is considered for release. Not guilty pleas were returned on three counts of making indecent images, and three further counts inciting a child, assault and sexual assault will lie on file. After the hearing, the victim's family said they would like to thank the police, Crown Prosecution Service and Witness Protection for their support. The judge expressed the hope they could start rebuilding your life again. Now, my next headline is What Do We Want? And that was from Thursday, June the 14th. <clears throat> A picture of beaches is uh, heading the the list. John Lewis, Ikea, Disney Store, Zara, or an indoor plaza filled with independent traders, these are some of the suggestions to replace House of Fraser in Worcester. Shoppers and leaders in the city have spoken out about the brands or businesses they would like to see moving into the Crowngate Shopping Centre when House of Fraser closes down. There is currently no new retailer lined up for the unit when the department store shuts early next year. House of Fraser's departure is due to the company struggling nationally as Worcester remains a strong economy with success such as the food festival last weekend and other big names thriving. Commenting on the Worcester News Facebook page, many shoppers said that they would welcome a John Lewis department store, Zara clothes shop, Disney outlet and a mixture of independent businesses in the large unit. Others suggested an Ikea or a Matalan, while the range was also a popular idea. In June 2016, the City Council rejected plans for a John Lewis, I'm sorry this has all been said before, store, Zara clothes shop and Disney outlet and a mixture of business. Others suggested <coughs> in, in June 
2016, the City Council rejected plans for a John Lewis home store at Worcester Woods because of fears of out-of-town shop would hurt the city centre. Commenting on replacements for the House of Fraser, Tina Prigg said John Lewis would be brilliant and would save on travelling. While Emma Hooper commented, Worcester needs a decent toy shop like Smythe's, not necessarily in the city centre. It would save a lot of travelling out of Worcester. Lukey Robinson said, you could split the current house of Fraser's store and have different traders share the place, adding, take Selfridges, traders sharing the same unit and it pulls in more customers. Cheryl Yates seconded the idea, saying they could turn it into a plaza and break it down into individual units for independent shops. Chris Barnes added, How about an IKEA? They do smaller city centre branches as well as the massive out-of-town ones. Phoebe Dawson, CEO of Worcester Bid, which works to improve the city's economy, said that there were plenty of reasons to be positive. Worcester is a vibrant and inviting city, a destination of choice. Most recently, holiday lettings named the Worcester Food Fest as one of the top ten attractions in the UK for June, and although we need to wait until next week, for the final football figures from the event, oops, sorry, football figures from the event, we do know that against last year's festival, which was run during the school holidays, we recorded 5,093 more visitors on Friday and an impressive increase of 33,032 on Saturday. That means that over 103,868 visitors were recorded in the city centre on Saturday alone, experiencing all that Worcester has to offer. She added, city centres are changing and those that can adapt will be the most successful. There is, and always will be, a place for retail and Worcester continues to offer much more than our neighbours, with over 40% more independent retailers than the UK and regional averages. That said, we do recognise that people visit the city for more than just shopping, and there it is important that we can offer access to social and leisure activities as well. The rising popularity of escape rooms, everyman cinemas and other leisure experiences have served our neighbourhood towns and cities well. These, along with a focus on marketing, our tourist attractions, our riverside and events such as the Food Fest and the excellent activities taking place this weekend, all help to cement Worcester in people's minds as the destination of choice to shop, to eat and to play. I'm sorry, it was all rapid. Right, are we okay? And now for some of the general articles this week. And first, one from Friday, June the 8th, City's risk of, quotes, early death. People living in Worcester are more likely to die early, according to a think tank. The city was named as one of 32 risk zones in the UK, 
where people are 29% more likely to die from avoidable causes. The Centre for Progressive Policy classes Worcester as a risk zone because of NHS finances, lower life expectancy and deprivation. It found that men in Worcester die almost a year younger than the national average, while the county's hospitals ran a deficit far higher than other trusts. Peter Pinfold, chairman of Healthwatch Worcestershire, said, In Worcester, we have low income levels, so poverty levels and people struggling is always higher. People drink too much and don't do enough exercise. Smoking is another one. It's about the pressure one is under. We have to tackle it. He added that the figures have also been affected by council and hospital cuts. Paul Caruana Galicia, senior research and analyst at the Centre for Progressive Policy, said, We classify Worcester local authority as a risk zone. This is because Worcester's male life expectancy at birth is lower than the average English local authorities. And also because Worcestershire Acute Hospital's NHS Trust ran a deficit of 16% of turnover, according to the latest fin available financial data referring to 2015-16. In comparison, the average English NHS Trust ran a deficit of 3% of turnover that year. Mr. Caruana Galicia said the centre also found a strong relationship between deprivation and health. He said, Worcester's level of deprivation is 9% higher than the average local authorities. This deprivation leads to worse health outcomes and an NHS trust that is under pressure. This is the picture we see in Worcester and the 31 other risk zones we highlight in the report. The Centre's report, titled Diagnosis Critical, Launching an Inquiry into Health and Social Care in England, does not clarify which causes of death were avoidable, although the phrase often refers to diseases, cancers and lifestyle-related illnesses. Men in Worcester live on average to 78.9 years old, compared with the national average of 79.7 years old. Worcestershire Acute Hospital's NHS Trust was unavailable for comment. Now then, I have a piece about the seagull population, which means that now there is a um, poster out which says feed the bins and not the gulls. So a warning has been given as the gulls return because they're coming back to breed, I gather. Residents in Worcester are uh, being urged, that's right, to... Uh, used common sense and put the leftover food in bins. Shoppers, visitors and residents have been urged to make sure they dispose of food properly when they're out and about by wrapping it up and putting it in the bin. The appeal has been put out by Worcester City Council. Councillor Joy Squires, chairman of the City Council's Environment Committee, said dropping the remains of sandwiches, kebabs, chips and other food in the street give gulls 
an opportunity to feed and encourage them to come into our city. Many Worcester people had had encounters with gulls. In 2016, a Worcester news reporter was attacked by a gull, leaving her with two deep cuts to the hand. Then, earlier this year, another reporter, Sebastian Richards, had a Greg's steak bake snatched out of his hand by a gull. Councillor Annan Feeney, Vice Chairman of the Environment Committee, said gulls are a problem in Worcester. They scavenge food, spread their droppings on our buildings and pavements, and they can be very noisy. There's no one simple solution to controlling our city's gull population, but if we all try to do what we can, it will help. Worcester City Council is working with partners, including Worcestershire Regulatory Services and Worcester Bid, Bid Business Improvement District to raise awareness of the actions we can all take to limit the nuisance caused by gulls. Alongside the Feed the Bins, Not the Gulls posters, advice and tips are being given to residents and employers to help them to take steps to reduce the impact of urban gulls in the city, and they include Dispose of your waste food carefully and responsibly when you're at home or out and about. Ensure waste food is wrapped up before putting it in a litter bin or your home wheelie bin. Don't leave waste food hanging out of a bin. Never drop your waste food on the floor. Don't overfill your bin so the lid can't close properly. Don't feed birds in parks, open spaces or on the street. Businesses should not leave waste out overnight, only putting it out for collection between 6am and 9.30am. Use spikes, wires and netting on roofs if it's safe to do so. And that seems to be the advice. A familiar face on the city's entertainment scene says he has big plans to revamp one of Worcester's oldest pubs. Tony Gibbon, who will be known to many for his time running Drummond's Night Spot, as well as managing bands including the Beatless Tribute Band, has taken over the Wheat Chief Pub, situated by the riverside in St John's. The new landlord said he had his eye on the Bromyard Road venue for more than 30 years and recently took over the pub, which is one of the oldest in the city, dating back to 1756. Refurbishment work has got underway recently and they discovered a fireplace in the pub's cellar dating back to the 1750s, showing the pub's age. Mr Gibbon said, I left Drummond's last August. My time in the city centre was done. I wanted a new challenge and was looking for something for myself to take on. When I found out it was on the market, I made an immediate offer for it. It is perfect for me. The 57-year-old said he was born and bred in Worcester with his family working in catering, so he grew up in the industry. He said living at the pub is the first time he has lived that side of the River Severn. The views are a hidden gem. It's one of the city's best-kept secrets, he said.
We are near the city centre, but could be in the countryside here. In the next month, we will be having new lighting, heating, flooring and benches in the outdoor terrace area. We are going to have a whole new terrace area, which you will step down to, uh, to the path to the river. We have got signs already letting people on the river and dog walkers know we are here. We get a lot of cyclists as well. Mr Gibbon said he plans to use the contacts he has built up to bring music to the pub. I'm planning to start live music probably early Sunday evening and that will be a weekly thing, he said. They will be local acts as I build up connections helping to promote festivals like mm. Mellow Festival. I run an agency, Backstage Promotions, and that deals with DJs and bands and singers, so I can call on them too. Mm. Mr Gibbon said he was aiming to keep the regulars who would help to make it a community pub, as well as attracting new clientele, including lecturers and students from nearby University of Worcester. Long term, he plans to open up the pub's two function rooms currently used as storage so that they can hold events such as weddings and he also plans to offer meals including Sunday lunches. It's all going really well. I can't wait for when the work is complete. It will look great when we have finished, he added. Now... An article from today's edition of the newspaper, much more than a farming show. The Royal Three Counties show is all set to be another bumper event with attractions for all the family and anyone with an interest in farming and the countryside. The show at the Three Counties showground, Malvern, starting tomorrow, Friday, is one of the largest agricultural events in England and draws livestock competitors from far and wide, said Head of Shows, Diana Walton. Many favourites are back this year, including the Three Counties Cider and Perry Show, the Wellington Boot Theatre, the Cookery Theatre and the Ask the Farmer area, as well as cast members of the Archers and a host of sports people. The Archers is one of the most famous radio programmes in the world and I know many fans will be keen to meet their favourite actors, said Mrs Walton. Taking centre stage in the show's agricultural area will be the livestock and once again the show has some exceptional entries, particularly the sheep classes. The show, the 60th staged at the Malvern Showground, will also feature national shows for British Blonde, Murray Grey, Longhorn, Gloucester and Red Pole Cattle. With the National Rare and Minority Breed Show taking place on the third day of the show, visitors have a truly unrivaled chance to see a wide variety of British livestock, she said. We are delighted to welcome such strong entries across our livestock section and look forward to seeing our champions crowned across all three days of the show, including the Grand Parade Champion of Champions, which this year will be judged by members of the cast of the Archers. The show will also host a wide range of act attractions, including a parade of machinery from the last century of farming. The pace of change in farming through mechanisation has been huge over the last 60 years and is increasing all the time with the advent of autonomous robotic tractors. 
Just a century ago, heavy horses were the mainstay of the farming industry, with tractors a rare sight. The parade of farm machinery through the ages will document the changing face of farm mechanisation on British farms and showcase the very latest in modern farm machinery. And the show's shearing shed will also see intense competition, including the final round of the English Wool Handling Championships, which have taken place at four previous shows across England. There is no better place to come and enjoy everything the countryside has to offer, and we look forward to welcoming bumper crowds to the show, she said. I have a picture of an enchanting uh, puppy. A society has uh, donated a generous amount to a charity that uses dogs to help people with disabilities. Midlands County's Canine Society, or MCCS, has, as part of its 50th anniversary celebrations, donated £26,000 to Dogs for Good, which is proudly celebrating its own 30th anniversary. Dogs for Good Chief Executive Peter Gorbing said, Over the past 30 years, I've seen demand for our services reach the point where they're now at an all-time high, and thus donations such as this incredibly generous one from our friends at MCCS are vital to ensure that we're able to continue providing the services to those that desperately need them. The money has been raised from dog show entry fees and fundraising initiatives that MCCS undertook in 2017 and will support the ongoing training and support of 33 Dogs for Good partnerships in Worcestershire, Warwickshire, Salop, Herefordshire and Hertfordshire. Since 1988, Dogs for Good has created no less than 875 assistant dogs partnerships, helped more than a 1,000 families with a child with autism spectrum condition through its family dog workshops, worked with schools and hospitals in the community and been involved in a number of special projects. The MCCS donation will specifically support vital aftercare for assistance dogs partnerships in the area, including 12 adult physical disabilities partnerships. Mm. Few have people visited three major museums in Worcestershire in the last year than the year before. But bosses at Museums Worcestershire, which runs the Commandery and Worcester's Museum and Art Gallery in Worcester and the County Museum at Hartlebury, are confident things are heading in the right direction. They say the dip in visitor numbers was caused by the work and partial closures of two of the museums, the Commandery and Hartlebury, for refurbishment in the last year. They believe now that's completed, more and more people will come along. A report on the past year's performance shows 92,628 people visited the three 
venues in 2017 and 18. That's 4,039 fewer than in 2016-17. Visitor numbers to the commandery actually went up from 17,752 to 18,760. But that was offset by 5,000 fewer people visiting the other venues. Visits by children and young people increased by nearly 2,500. And the museum's Worcestershire website is increasingly popular. Unique visitor numbers took a jump from 196,000 to nearly 244,000, including 55,000 first-time visitors, a 12,000 increase. A spokesman for Museums Worcestershire said, We know how important a website is. More than 50% of visitors now use the website before coming in person. So we make sure our website is constantly updated. At the City Council's Place and Economic Development Committee this week, Council Leader Mark Bayliss expressed concern. He said, The totals look a bit flat to me. I don't think the refurbishment of the commandery has finished, in my view. The work so far has concentrated more on infrastructure. The museum's Worcestershire spokesman said, We are grateful for the investment by the City Council and the commandery. It has allowed us to really improve the buildings and create the civil war story telling a very important part of this city's history. We are now very much on the up. Uh, article here about Lady Skittles, which is very popular in Worcester. Red Hill Phillies Lady Skittles team won the Doris Fern D final against top of the table Brew Bells. Proud team captain Chris Cook's partner is Don Fern, who had dedicated the Doris Fern trophy in memory of his wife when she died. Uh, Phillies had played three matches to get into the final and then it all came down to the last ball. They needed 76 for the victory, which was a big ask as they had struggled to get high scores in previous legs during the match. Julie Philpotts got a 13 spare, which spurred Phillies on and the last bowler, Cook, needed six to win with a nine securing a four-pin success. Cook said, It just goes to show that if you try, you can achieve what you want, and we did it for Don. Our second sports article is on netball. I can't remember having done one of those for a long time. Stars light up the arena with victory. Seven stars confidently brushed aside UWS sirens with a dominant 55-36 victory for their third successive home victory. Despite a fiercely contested opening 15 minutes, stars came alive in the second quarter to build a decisive 14-goal lead and the visitors were unable to recover. The win gave Stars momentum in their pursuit of a confirmed sixth spot in the Vitality Netball Super League, with both remaining games at the University of Worcester Arena. In an even start to the first quarter, neither side could build more than a one-goal lead. Stars enjoyed the upper hand in the final three minutes of the quarter, though. 
relentless defensive work from goalkeeper Fumza Maweni helped keep the visitors at bay, while goal shooter Eleanor Cardwell and goal attack Marika Holtzhausen found their range to ensure Stars led 11-7. They carried their momentum into the second quarter, racing to an early 15-8 lead as they slowly began to wear down a stubborn defence. The hosts increased in confidence with Maweni, goal defence Sam Cook and wing defence Jodie Gibson winning several interceptions to limit Siren's effectiveness in the circle. Stars began to dominate in the attacking third, too, with wing attack Iona Daroch cleverly finding space for Cardwell and Holthausen, who ensured they went into the half-time interval 28-14 in front. Sirens responded in the third quarter, with goal shooter Chantal Slater finding more space. But Stars maintained a healthy lead with their quick attacking play, overwhelming a stretched defence to end the quarter 44-24 in front. Stars turned on the style in the final period with Gibson's precise long pass, finding Cardwell, who netted to increase the lead to 48-26. They rang the changes with the entire bench getting a run out to seal a comfortable victory. Head coach Sam Bird said, I'm really pleased with that. We've been training abroad in La Manca. The girls really connected while we were back with there and wanted to come back and show we're totally well organised as a team. We played with structure and were really quite clinical in some of our play, so I'm happy. Now, I've got a picture of four cyclists. Worcester St John's Cycling Club are celebrating after a raft of wins at the UCI Tour of Cambridgeshire. Sarah Watmore and David Hughes qualified for Great Britain for September's UCI World Fondo Championships in Varese, Italy. The top 25% finished times within each age group in the Chrono Group <coughs> Fondo Race and Grand Fond Supportive collectively progressed. Watmore of Hallow said, I'm absolutely thrilled I was in the 45 to 49 female age bracket in the 21 plus miles per hour support group of the Grand Fondo Sportive. It was a 79.3 mile route, which I completed in 3 hours 44 minutes at 21 miles per hour average, coming in at 22nd out of 32 qualifying women in my age bracket. It was tough and the start was very fast, but I stuck with the group for most of the first half. Hughes said he competed well in the first half of the race, despite the 26-degree heat. In the second half, I began to suffer with dehydration and cramp and was dropped from the peloton with just 10 miles to the finish line, he said. However, I gritted my teeth to cross the line four minutes behind the bunch in 3.19 to put myself in the top 25% of riders in the 45 to 49 age category. Meanwhile, Mark Hand, Ricky Hughes, Stuart Parker and Martin Stanley 
headed for the team chrono race, which was a time trial on road bikes around a 16.4-mile circuit. One of the four was suffering from flu, but all finished together as a team. Stanley said the commentator announced Worcester St John's as being one of the oldest clubs in the country still going. It felt really good to hear the acknowledgement of our club, he said. We completed the race in 22nd place with a time of 41.40. The event was great fun and we are already planning to go back next year with the team at full strength. 27 riders competed in the D&G Hughes Cup over the hilly 14-mile Eli Circuit time trial. Simon Garrett retained the silverware with winning time of 34.22 from Mark Daffin with 35.18 and Mark Lyons with 36.44. David Pardo clocked 38 24, Will Davis 38.18, Ed Dursley 38.20 and Rob Nichols 38.35. Sean Dyson was 38.45, Henry Marles 20, sorry, 39.28, Parker 40.16, Dylan Perkins 40.38. <clears throat> Russell Middleton was 41.19, Marcus Hibbert 41.59, Sam Clark 42.43, Andrew Russell 42.59, Alan Watson 43.26, Gary Holland 44.35 and Sam Revel at 44.39. Worcester Warriors youngsters Ted Hill, James Scott and Will Butler were celebrating after England reached the World Under-20 Championship final with a 32-31 win over South Africa. Flanker Hill and Locke Scott started the semi-final while centre Butler was an unused replacement as England edged the Springboks in France. South Africa threatened to pull off a stunning fight back in Narbonne after Steve Bates' men were reduced to 14 in the closing minutes when Scott saw yellow. But England hung on to book their place in the final against France in Brazier on Sunday uh, after the hosts stunned defending champions New Zealand. South Africa number 8 Muller Ewes was sin banned early on and England's Tom Parton and Tom Hardwick took advantage with tries. Ben White also finished off under the posts and Marcus Smith added his second conversion. South Africa's Sazi Sandy bundled over and Gianni Lombard's conversion reduced the deficit further, but Smith's penalty gave England a 22-7 half-time advantage. Eus crashed over early in the second half, but Smith kept the scoreboard ticking over with a second penalty. Ruan Norgitz 
went over for his side's third, which Lombard converted. But Jordan Olawefella ran in a loose ball on halfway, and Smith kicked the extras for a 32 to 19 lead. Manuel Ras crossed to add more late drama, and then Scott was sin banned. Arsenathi, oh gosh, and if I can pronounce this, Tal Bakanaye, powered in from two meters, <laughs> and the conversion made it 32-31, with four minutes left. But England held on to most of the possession. The nation's head coach, Bates, said, It's a great achievement for these guys. They played some really good rugby in the first half, but couldn't quite get enough ball in the second, which meant it ended up being a tight game. From the forwards' perspective, that was a gruelling game, and this side's spirit shone through in those final moments. Now we have another now we have to recover and prepare for Sunday's final. Now a more general article on Rugby Union and Worcester Warriors about one particular player. Singleton gets the call from England. Uncapped Worcester Warriors hooker Jack Singleton will join England's squad in South Africa as cover for Luke Cowan-Dickey. England have confirmed Singleton, 22, has been called up as a precaution after Exeter Chiefs front rower Cohen Dickey experienced hamstring tightness following their 42-39 defeat in Johannesburg. Singleton featured in the recent non-cap game against the Barbarians at Twickenham and toured with Eddie Jones' squad to Argentina last year. England are preparing for the second test match at Bloemfontein in, on Saturday. Meanwhile, three Warriors players have been named in England's squad for their World Under-20 Championship semi-final against South Africa. James Scott and Ted Hill will start in the forward pack, while Will Butler has been selected on the bench for the match in Narbonne. But there is no place for Warriors hooker Beck Cutting, despite marking his first start for his country with a try in England's win over Scotland. Steve Bates side head into the knockout stages as top seeds after three bonus point victories over Argentina, Italy and Scotland. Hosts France take on New Zealand in tomorrow's other semi-final in Perpignan. England have reached the final in five consecutive years. Bates said, We're into the knockout stages of the competition now, so we need to raise the tempo of our game and be more accurate, as well as play at a more intense pace. At this stage of the competition, the stakes are high. We need to be able to play under that type of pressure while also being able to raise our game. We've been able to rotate the squad quite nicely throughout the tournament. We've got two Premiership players coming back into the side who didn't play in our final pool game, so they will be fresh and will add a great deal to the team. My message to players will be a simple one. These opportunities don't come round too often. We're in the semi-final of a wonderful competition playing Southern Hemisphere opposition, and I want them to show their class. The key thing is not to be overawed by the occasion, but to go out there and attack them. Now, this is uh, a piece about uh, City Strike Ace, Kyan Evans. 
He says he's unfinished business at Worcester City after being given a second chance by manager John Snape. The forward found the back of the net once in a short spell at City last season before returning to West Midlands League Premier Division outfit Morven Town. But Evans' goals helped fire Town to third position and Snape reckons that the 25-year-old can make an impact in the Midland League Premier Division this time around. Lower Broadheath-based Evans said he and Snape were now singing from the same hymn sheet and insisted that he was excited to be rejoining his boyhood club. It didn't go well at all at City last time, said Evans, who made his debut for Worcester in the 2010-11 National North season. I was brought in to be a winger when I had been transformed as a striker over the past couple of seasons. Speaking to Snapper, we are both on the same wavelength now, so I'm looking forward to getting out there and proving what I'm about. I think there is unfinished business at Worcester, which is one of the reasons why I jumped at the chance of signing for them. I have got a lot more to show. The signing of Evans further bolsters Snape's striker department, which features Dave Reynolds, Nick Turton, James Baldwin and Joe Bates, who is joined from Bishop's Cleave. But Evans, who scored regularly for Hallow in the Worcester and District League Sunday Premier Division last term, believes that he will add more than just goals to the city. I got 21 goals in the league for more than last season, but I see myself as someone who assists more goals than scores, Evans said. Snapper sees me as someone who can play a bit, but if we're under the cosh and he needs someone to put himself about, I could do that too. At Morven, I played with two strike partners in Matt Turner and Josh Hunt, who scored a couple more goals than me. We have all got the same build and skill sets, but I see myself as someone who gets into position to set people up rather than just to score. It's an exciting time to be at Morven, and there are really good lads there, so it was a difficult decision but I think this is a good move for me. Worcester has already got two profile goal scorers and I'm here to help. So if I could get 20-plus goals again, that would be a fantastic. Snape also thinks Evans will benefit from training with the squad this summer before the campaign gets underway. Kyan is coming back after scoring on a regular basis for Baldwin, Snape added. We have high hopes when he came to us, but lacked a full pre-season. To be fair to the player and the club, I think we both missed a trick. With a full warm-up programme behind him, he'll get the chance to establish himself in the first team and make an impact. And now, on this day... Events and anniversaries for today, 14th of, of June, in years gone by. A bit of historical interest. Well, on the 14th of June, 1645, the Battle of Naseby took place in Northamptonshire during the Civil War. 
Cromwell's parliamentarians, roundheads, defeated the royalists, cavaliers, under Prince Rupert, defending King Charles I. 1840. The first reduced-rate railway excursion was introduced when Newcastle and Carlisle Railway ran a works family outing from Newcastle to Carlisle. 1873, King Priam's treasure of 8,700 priceless pieces was discovered in Turkey by German-American Heinrich Schliemann. In disinterring it, he destroyed what was left of Troy. 1919, Captain John Alcock and Lieutenant Arthur Whitten Brown took off from Newfoundland on the first non-stop transatlantic flight to Galway, Ireland, in Vickers Vimy. 1940, German troops entered Paris and the swastika flew from the Eiffel Tower. Eight days later, the armistice was signed and the Vichy government was set up. In 1964, on this day, Nelson Mandela was sentenced to life imprisonment and sent to Robben Island, seven miles off Cape Town, sparking international protests. Mm -hmm. On this day in 1970, Bobby Charlton played his 106th and last football match for England in the World Cup in Mexico. And on this day in 1982, Argentinian troops on the Falkland Islands surrendered when General Mario Benjamin Menendez agreed to an armistice. Next, we'll have the death and funeral announcements. Nellie May Atkinson died on May the 26, 2018. The funeral has already taken place. Robert Edward or Bob Babington passed away on Saturday, May the 26th. And the funeral service will take place at St John the Baptist Church, Clanes, on Monday, June the 18th at 11.30. Sheila Margaret Cunningham, formerly Kathleen, passed away peacefully on May the 9th, aged 86 years. Funeral service at Worcester Crematorium on Friday, June the 15th at 11.30am. Betty Irene Gray, nay Hinks, passed away unexpectedly but peacefully on Sunday, May the 27th, 2018. Funeral service will take place at Worcester Crematorium on Monday, June the 18th, 2018 at 11.30 a.m. Janet Holmes died peacefully at home on May the 10th, 2018. The funeral has already taken place. And George Henry Yardley has passed away peacefully by his, with his loving family. Funeral service at Madrasfield Church, Malvern, on Thursday, June the 28th at 11am. Now, um, this is Sharon Tyler's announcement. She passed away peacefully at St Richard's Hospice on May the 28th, 2018, aged 47 years. 
Funeral services, Martin's Church, London Road, Worcester, on Tuesday, June the 19th at 2pm. Then Jill, Jill Williams of St John's passed away in hospital on May the 26th, 2018, aged 80 years. Funeral service will be at Worcester Crematorium on Monday, June the 18th at 3.15pm. John Frederick Hadley of Lye, he was a retired highways worker and he passed away suddenly on May the 30th, 2018, aged 75 years. Funeral service will take place at Worcester Crematorium on Wednesday, June the 20th at 11.30am. Roger Rog Hemming sadly passed away at home on May the 26th, 2018, aged 64 years. His funeral service will take place at Worcester Crematorium on Friday, June the 29th at 10.45am. And Eric Jackson passed away peacefully at Queen's Medical Hospital, Nottingham, on May the 27th, 2018, aged 97 years. His funeral service will take back place at Worcester Crematorium on Monday, June the 25th, 2018, at 10am. Donald William Sorrell of Droitwich, formerly of Sturchley, passed away peacefully in hospital on May the 27th, 2018, aged 83 years. Funeral services at Worcester Crematorium on Tuesday, June the 19th at 10.45am. And that's all. Uh, Eric William Bill Avery, ex-GPO, passed away on May the 31st. Um, Funeral service to take place at Worcester Crematorium on Friday, June the 15th at 1pm. Barbara Robinson passed away peacefully on May the 24th. Um, Funeral service to be held at Worcester Crematorium on Monday, June the 18th at 12.15pm. Joan Scott, known as Joy Smith, uh, passed away at Fernhill House Care Home on May the 9th. Um, and a service to celebrate her life will be held at St Stephen's Church, Worcester, on Monday, June the 18th at 11am. Joyce Stallard Nee Harrison passed away peacefully at home on May the 31st. A funeral service will take place at St Clement's Church, St John's, on Tuesday the 19th of June at 1.15pm. Ray Archer of Lower Broadheath uh, passed away peacefully at Stanfield Nursing Home on June the 1st, aged 91. Uh, funeral service would take place at Christ Church, Lower Broadheath on Thursday, June the 21st at 1pm. Uh, Frank Edward Dark of Worcester passed away peacefully at home on May the 25th. Funeral service at Worcester Crematorium on Thursday the 28th at 1pm. William Bill Toppin, ex-Heenan and Frode, passed away on May the 25th. 
and a celebration of Bill's life will take place at Clane's Church on Thursday, June the 21st. Um, and Danny Willoughby, uh, formerly of Canterbury Road, funeral service to be held at Worcester Crematorium on June the 20th at 2.30pm. Casual dress, no black, it requests. George Henry Yardley, um, passed away peacefully at home. A funeral service to be held at Magersfield Church, Malvern, on Thursday, June the 28th at 11am. Thank you, Hugh. And I'm going to ask you now to read out our birthdays and also follow that with thought for the week. Okay, well, the birthdays are Moira Lowe on the 14th of June, Ruth Hill, sorry, the next one is Elizabeth Bio on the 15th, Ruth Hill on the 17th, Roy Knight on the 18th, Janet Weaver and Vera Twinbarrow both on the 20th. And um, our thought for the day, this is for the week ending Saturday the 16th. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendour to their children. May the favour of the Lord our God rest on us, establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. And now some useful telephone numbers. Out of hours medical help emergencies, 6 to 8 p.m., 0300-123-3211. The NH number for non-emergencies is 111. Malvern Theatre, 01684-892277. Worcester Live for the Swan Theatre and Huntingdon Hall, Worcester 611429. The Worcester Hub for Council Matters, Worcester 765765 or 72233. Crime Stoppers 0800-555111. And Samaritans 116123. And that is a free phone. And now for a choice by each of us um, of an interesting article from the week's news. So as I'm boss for the evening, I'm going first. Support for three million pound mosque. Church leaders across Worcester have signed an open letter supporting plans for a new three million pound mosque in Worcester. Members of the Church of England clergy in Worcester East Deanery backed the bid for the contemporary building in Stanley Road in the letter to Worcester Muslim Welfare Association General Secretary Muhammad Iqbal. The Reverend Paul Honeyball 
and Reverend Calantha Bruis read out the letter during the interfaith iftar at the mosque in Tallow Hill on Monday, June the 11th evening, just before worshippers broke their fast. The Reverend Calantha Bruis said it was very important to show support during what is a very important time for the Muslim community in Worcester. We wanted to show our support is because we feel it is very important, especially in the current climate. We saw that there had been a mixed reaction to the application and we wanted to make it clear that there are very good reasons for this to go ahead. There is so much that is done by the Muslim community in Worcester that is so positive and the sense of community is really fantastic. It is a great example to the rest of us. It is a thing that as a community we need to come together to celebrate and support. We feel that it is a very positive move in a very important moment for the Muslim community. It is a big step for them and we wanted to affirm and encourage that. Mr Iqbal from the Worcester Muslim Welfare Association said he and the Muslim community were completely overwhelmed by the letter and the support from the church. I've had quite a lot of calls since the announcement from people wanting to show their support. I've seen some negative comments towards the mosque and obviously the church have also read some of those and wanted to show their support. It is a really good message. We should be all working together, especially in churches and mosques. The new mosque in Stanley Road will include four apartments, a new sports facility, youth room and gym. And there is a picture of the plans which have been unveiled for the new mosque due to be built in Stanley Road. Right, I have a piece about Elgar's archives. The esteem in which Elgar, Edward Elgar is held within the city and county can seem somewhat confusing. On the one hand, he is recognised as Worcester's favourite son. On the other, he attracts little or no support from our municipal bodies. Until, of course, there is some political advantage to be gained by those who are otherwise ambivalent. The questions surrounding where the Elgar archives should be housed are of immense importance to researchers and scholars. And now that it is to be moved to the British Library, local politicians too. This begs several questions. When, for instance, was the last time any local political figure visited the Furs? Where was the political support for the recent festival? As far as I am aware, no funding was granted by either city or county in support of the festival, and the only councillor to attend was Alan Feeney, who chairs the festival committee. Support for our city's cultural heritage is important all of the time, but not just when it's threatened. Enter Warwickshire by any route and you will know you are in Shakespeare country. 
is Worcestershire not Elgar's? Crocodile tears will not wash the stench of political opportunism, and that is written by Stuart Freed, who is the vice chairman of the Elgar Society. Okay, this is the uh, Dean's Diary, written by Peter Atkinson. When I blast the Great West Window of Worcester Cathedral on Sunday afternoon, perilously perched on top of a platform put up for the purpose, the summer sunshine poured in, showing off the newly restored colours to full effect. For a year, we have had scaffolding up inside and outside the west end of the cathedral, while the glass, lead, iron and stone that make up the window have been carefully repaired. Do make a point of going to see the window. It was made in 1874 by the great Birmingham glassmaker John Hardman, John, sorry, John Hardman Powell, and it was a gift of the then Earl of Dudley. It shows the story of creation as we read it in the first chapters of Genesis. The first two chapters of the book of Genesis are not a history lesson, but a hymn in praise of God the Creator. Christians, along with those of many other religious faiths, believe in a good God who made the world as a good place. The earth and everything in it are to be cherished, guarded and enjoyed as God's gifts. The story of the window is a reminder to all who see it that the earth is both a beautiful and fragile thing, like the window itself. The window is full of animals, including, of course, the famous giraffe, which the glassmaker depicted as distinctive, distinctly pink. So the window reminds us we have a responsibility for all living things, plants and animals. We human beings are here simply as stewards. It is not for us to plunder the earth for our own comfort, regardless of the damage we do. Giraffes will soon be appearing for the St. Richard's Hospice Initiative, Worcester Stands Tall. But Worcester's first giraffe is there in the west window. Do go and find him, her. Mm. After months of cleaning and repair, he, she is definitely in the pink. And one mm. last article, very current because... This is the... Uh, Dean's Diary, written by Peter Atkinson. When I blessed the Great West Window of Worcester Cathedral on Sunday afternoon, perilously perched on top of a platform put up for the purpose, the summer sunshine poured in, showing off the newly restored colours to full effect. For a year, we have had scaffolding up inside and outside the west end of the cathedral, while the glass, lead, iron and stone that make up the window have been carefully repaired. Do make a point of going to see the window. It was made in 1874 by the great Birmingham glassmaker John Hardman. John, sorry, John Hardman Powell. And it was a gift of the then Earl of Dudley. It shows the story of creation as we read it in the first chapters of Genesis. The first two chapters of the book 
of Genesis are not a history lesson, but a hymn in praise of God the Creator. Christians, along with those of many other religious faiths, believe in a good God who made the world as a good place. The earth and everything in it are to be cherished, guarded and enjoyed as God's gifts. The story of the window is a reminder to all who see it that the earth is both a beautiful and fragile thing, like the window itself. The window is full of animals, including, of course, the famous giraffe, which the glassmaker depicted as distinctive, distinctly pink. So the window reminds us we have a responsibility for all living things, plants and animals. We human beings are here simply as stewards. It is not for us to plunder the earth for our own comfort, regardless of the damage we do. Giraffes will soon be appearing for the St. Richard's Hospice Initiative, Worcester Stands Tall. But Worcester's first giraffe is there in the west window. Do go and find him, her. After months of cleaning and repair, he, she is definitely in the pink. And one mm. last article, very current mm. because of the views about uh, reducing the amount of plastic that we use nowadays. Mm-hmm. Firm helps create innovative bag. A Worcestershire firm, a manufacturer of reusable bags, has joined forces with a national supermarket to create an innovative product. Juxtexpo has joined forces with Waitrose and designer Emma Bridgewater to create a reusable bag made entirely of recycled plastic bottles. Mm -hmm. With the launch of the bags, the supermarket and the Broadway-based firm will be reusing half a million bottles in total. The bags are made from a fabric using 100% recycled plastic bottles and are the first to have the integrity of certification to the Global Recycled Standard, GRS. Each bag is created using the material from seven plastic bottles in a process which turns the plastic into a durable and practical fabric called R-PET fabric, short for recycled polyethylene terephthalate, which looks like a jute bag with a wipe-clean coating. The supermarket expects that a number of reusable Waitrose shopping bags will be designed using the same material in the future, turning more than one million plastic bottles into shopping bags. The design features Emma's iconic polka dots and comes in two summery colours, a bright and bold purple and a classic cream and lilac. Also part of the range are four new fold-away pouch bags, also made from recycled plastic bottles, featuring classic Emma Bridgewater designs. Both types of bag will be available in Waitrose shops from June the 20th, with 10% of the retail price from each bag going to the Prince's Countryside Fund which supports projects across the UK that help provide a secure future for the countryside. 
The bags are priced at £5 and the pouch bags will be £4. Sam Turner from Jutexpo said, Waitrose was Jutexpo's first ever customer when we began producing and supplying reusable bags 15 years ago and the relationship we have with them has been key to understanding the issues around plastic bottles and the ways in which they can be repurposed in a meaningful way. That's a new word to me, yeah. repurposed. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> I bought a, uh, a recycled plastic bag uh, from, made from bottles from Oxfam. Oh, must have been five years ago. Right. And it goes in the washer. It, it's, it really is. Uh, so there's a lot going for this yes, in Worcester yes. and elsewhere. Yes. Well, now we've reached the end of this recorded edition. My thanks go to Paddy mm -hmm. and Hugh and to Barry. We hope you've enjoyed listening to our choices and we also hope you'll tune in to next week's edition. Best wishes to you all. So it's goodbye from me, Evelyn. Paddy. And Hugh, goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you.